there. Where you going? No, man. You got the right classroom. Come on in. Take a She's seat gone. beside me, my friend. <laughs> hey, look. Here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Happy Friday. You're watching The Road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for the Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. It might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, and it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter, and sometimes on YouTube. That's when the professor's not going to get himself censored, mostly just Wednesday. Then you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page at theroadtoconcord.com. That's where you'll find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at theroadtoconcord.com. He's a little slow right now, but he'll eventually get around to yeah, emailing you back, not calling you back. Well, he might call you. If you send him a phone number, he might. Uh, phones are on today, 229-469-0335, but only for registered numbers. We only accept calls from regular known listeners. If you wish to call in, you must be a known class member that has participated in the chats on a regular basis. You may then request a phone access through an email. If you find our classes helpful, please click thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them, Joe is an acquired taste, and he's on Donuts today, so you're going to find that out. Uh, <laughs> this show is listener-sponsored, meaning we do not solicit business advertising, We are not limit, so we are not limited in the content we provide for y'all. With that said, we ask for your participation on a value-for-value value basis. If you find our show of value to you, then you provide an equivalent potion. Portion, portion. Oh boy, I can't talk today. It's Friday. Portion of your labor yes, and treasure. Friday, to the donate link. It's worse than that, Jim. On the We're on donuts. <laughs> blog page and the show description on Rumble and in the comments mm. on the other streams. Oh my goodness. Yes, hey, we have. We had don't know Road to Charlie crack today. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You soon realize we not might be the smartest. But we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're logic. free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. Yes, sailor son. Charlie has had donuts. His wife, Gummy Bear, had him bring the donuts. And yes, he has had too many donuts. There's Gummy Bear's chiming in right there. It sounds like Charlie's had, Charlie's had too many donuts. Yes, he had too many donuts. Too much sugar. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Poor Charlie. He was too skinny. He didn't make it. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, do yourself a favor. Look up uh, John Penney, P-E-N-N-E. And, oh, that comedian was hilarious. He's talking about when he had to go to the Italian restaurant and he had one of his friends with him, Timmy. He says, poor Timmy, he didn't make it. He was too skinny. He couldn't eat with us. He couldn't keep up. <laughs> eat you under the table instead of drinking you under the table. Yes, it is Friday and we are on donuts around here, meaning that we are liable to be wound a little tight. Like Natasha says, donuts around here are our version of crack. So today, we've been doing lawlessness all week. You know, lawlessness of the American left. Hmm. You know, there's lawlessness on the right too, correct? You know, you're aware of this? 
yeah, that's where we're going to start. Told you we would. Although you probably didn't think that's where I was going with this today. Not if you were listening yesterday at the end of the show when I set today up. This is, well, you know, it's true from a certain point of view. Yeah, I'm going to start with Star Wars today. What's that got to do with the law and the founding of America, Joe? That's got everything, man. Perspective is everything, folks. Yes? No? Sort of? Kind of? Hmm? All right, well. <laughs> Perception's reality, right? <laughs> yes. John Quest says, crack. What is this, the White House? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a fun show today. <laughs> All right. Getting serious for just a second. Daniel Webster from the works of Daniel Webster, volume one, pages 231 to 232. Webster says, other misfortunes may be born or their effects overcome. If disastrous war should sweep our commerce from the ocean, another generation may renew it. If it exhausts our treasury, future industry may replenish it. If it desolate and lay waste our fields still under a new cultivation, they will grow green again and ripen to future harvests. It were but a trifle, even if the walls of yonder capital were to crumble. If it is lofty, pillars should fall. If its lofty pillars should fall and its gorgeous decorations be covered by the dust of the valley, all these might be rebuilt. But who shall reconstruct the fabric of demolished government? Who shall rear again the well-proportioned columns of constitutional liberty? Who shall frame together the skillful architecture which unites national sovereignty with state rights individual security, and public prosperity. No, if these columns fall, they will be raised and not again. Like the Colosseum and the Parthenon, Parthenon, they will be destined to a mournful and melancholy immortality. Bitterer tears, however, will flow over them than were ever shed over the monuments of Rome and Grecian art. For they will be the remnants of a more glorious edifice than Greece or Rome ever saw, edifice of a constitutional American liberty. We're already there. What he's telling you is if we get to the point where we're at now, you will not restore it. And we're not going to. We're going to reap the whirlwind. I know, I know, I know. It's Friday, Joe. Why are you being so pessimistic? Well, you know. Let's take a secular, secular religious. Huh? Yes, secular religious perspective on the founding of America. Stick with me here. Don't bail on me today. We're back in Mr. Clo uh, Skousen, uh, Cleon Skousen. This is, you know, this is what we covered yesterday. He's an American conservative author with the John Birch Society, faith-based conspiracy theorist, according to Wikipedia, notable anti-communist and supporter of the John Birch Society. They want to link him to the John Birch Society because at this point in time, they have successfully demagogued or demonized the John Birch Society. Well, he was a Mormon. That's important. There's your secular religion. But about the John Birch Society, why is it so bad? Well, you know, it's a right-wing political advocacy group. It's founded in 1958, and it's anti-communist, supports social conservatism, and is associated with ultra-conservative, radical right, far right, or libertarian ideas. Essentially, the John Birch Society is started from the oppose, opposing collectivism as a cancer and, by extension, communism and big government. The organization and its founder, Robert Welch, promoted Americanism as the philosophical antithesis of communism. It contended that the United States is a republic and not a democracy. Well, that's true. The founder said so. And argued that the state's rights should supersede those of the federal government. Well, that's true. The founders said so. 
Welch-infused constitutional and classic liberal uh, principles in addition to his conspiracy theories. Classic liberals, that's what the founders are. In other words, the conspiracy theories are somebody's trying to undo the Constitution of the United States. Oh, what a conspiracy. And he wants to get back to the original intent of the founding fathers and the Constitution. Oh, what a horrible thing to do. If you're a progressive, it is horrible. If you're a progressive, you've chosen a side other than the one that John Birch chose. Interesting, huh? See, it's true from a certain point of view. Are you going to choose the progressive point of view? Or are you going to choose an originalist point of view? Well, that's pretty much what we're going to be dealing with today. But even if you choose an originalist, there's two ways to look at the founding of the United States. Now, the reason I call Mr. Skousen a, and, and Charlie's free to chime in here if he wants to. I don't know if he's going to want to do this or not, but I call him a religious, religious secularist. Mormonism. And I do not mean to disparage any Mormons that are listening to me, but by definition, your religion is secularly based because you believe that man can become a God through his works. That's in your doctrine. Am I missing something here, Charlie? Accurate. All right. So that's a secular, by definition of secular, that's a secular religion. It is a religion, but it's based on the works of man. Man is his own God. It is not far removed from the progressive ideal, man as his own God. You can direct your own evolution. So this is how Mr. Skosen's looking at things. What we, if you're in the religious world, what you would consider secular, but it is also a religion. So secular religious perspective of the founding of America. Mr. Skosen's probably most well-known for the writing of this one book right here. This is a miracle that changed the world, the 5,000-year leap. Principles of Freedom 101. I took the description from uh, Amazon. It says, the nation the founders built is now in the throes of a political, economic, and social and spiritual crisis that has driven many to an almost frantic search for modern solutions. The truth is that the solutions have been available for a long time in the writings of our founding fathers, carefully set forth in, time, in this timely book. Well, yes and no. He does cover what the founders wrote. He tends to miss a lot of what the founders told us we need to depend it to. He gets the building correct, but he misses the foundation. I've got an older copy of the 5,000-year leap, but the, the gems in, in here. He's got um, two parts. The first part is the structure of uh, a government with all power in the people. And then he says part two, the founders' basic principles. It's got 28 of them. One, the genius of natural law. Two, a virtuous and moral people. Three, virtuous and moral leaders. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We've already, under, <clears throat> we've already lost the foundation right here. We no longer follow natural law. We're not a virtuous people and we don't have virtuous leaders. Why don't we have virtuous leaders? Because we don't have virtuous people. Why don't we have a virtuous people? Because we've abandoned natural law. Whoops. Well, somebody just bounced along here and yanked out my bottom Jenga block and the whole tower came down. So the fourth principle, the role of religion. In supporting all of that, the fifth principle, the role of the creator. Sixth, all men are created equal. Seventh, equal rights, not equal things. Eight, man's unalienable rights. Nine, the role of revealed law. Ten, the sovereignty of the people. Eleven, who can alter the government. Twelve, advantage of a republic. Thirteen, protection against human frailty. Fourteen, property rights essential to liberty. Fifteen, free market economics. Sixteen, the separation of powers. Seventeen, checks and balances. 
18, the importance of written constitution. 19, limiting and defining the powers of government. 20, majority rule, minority rights. 21, strong local self-government. 22, government by law, not by men. 23, importance of an educated electorate. 24, peace through strength. 25, avoid entangling alliances. 26, protecting the role of the family. 27, avoiding the burden of debt. 28, the founder's sense of manifest destiny. Now, he gets that one wrong big time. But that's for a different discussion, which we'll have in a little bit. Now, he's got another book. Um, he's also known for writing this one. Well, I should have centered that, but this is The Making of America, The Substance and Meaning of the Constitution. And here's what comes from uh, Amazon. He says, for many years in the United States, there's been a gradual drifting away from the Founding Fathers' original uh, success formula. This has re resulted in some of their uh, most unique contributions for a free and prosperous society becoming lost or misunderstood. Therefore, there has been a need to review the history and development of the making of America in order to recapture the brilliant precepts which made America the first free people in modern times. The making of America provides a wealth of material in the founding of the Fathers' intentions when drafting the American Constitution. It is one of the most thorough comp compilations of statements by the framers related to constitutional interpretation and addresses the Constitution clause by clause providing resources on the founder's intent of each clause. The National Center for Constitutional Studies, a nonprofit educational foundation, was created in order to receive those original American concepts and all of their uh, individual brilliance and, and vitality, revive them, I'm sorry. The very fact that many of them are becoming obscure, misunderstood, emphasizes the urgency of the task. The study for making of America extended over a period of nearly 40 years an organized effort to present this information in a public text was a concerted endeavor of nearly 14 years. It will be observed that many new insights are provided in the writing of the founders for the solutions to serious economic, political, and social problems plaguing the world today. It is felt that a study of making America can be a lasting value to all who have a serious concern for the general welfare of not only America, but all mankind. That's what this book is about right here. Comment on the board from Sailor Sun. How many of our leaders have been divorced? Who uh, We have one running for president with multiple divorces. Three, I think. What's that got to Oh, well, okay, I see. Character of our leaders. Gotcha. Anyhow, this is the making of America, 5,000 Year Leap. For those who are interested, this book, the 5,000 Year Leap, is the cliff notes for this book, The Making of America. Now, they are very useful books, but they are what I would say secular and ideal. Why do I say that? Well, I'll explain that to you here as we go along. <clears throat> In Skosin's view, what he's looking at is man's thinking, man's reasoning, and man's actions in this. If you're going to look just to man's actions and reasoning in the founding of America, you're going to miss something that the founding fathers, even Madison himself, pointed out. Madison said, and I'll paraphrase it because I don't remember it word for word, but he said that you cannot look at the founding of this nation and miss the guiding hand of providence in, in, in the history of what happened. Meaning you cannot look at how this nation came together and miss the hand of God. Skosin does. He does reference religion and he does reference, you know, religious principles and things like that, but he doesn't put as much emphasis on it as the founding fathers did. And that's important. 
He starts here. He makes a hero out of Jefferson. Skosin does in the, in the making of America. And he makes a big hero out of Jefferson, says Jefferson's primarily responsible for the founding principles of America. Uh-huh. I'm going to challenge that in just a minute. But this is a Jefferson quote. It says, the common law existed while the Anglo-Saxons were yet pagans at a time when they had never yet heard the name of Christ pronounced or knew that such a character existed. Mm, I'm not so sure Mr. Jefferson's accurate here, but that doesn't matter. The point here is that Skolson says that we found all of the principles for the Constitution of the United States in the Saxons. And originally, um, I can't show it to you because I couldn't find it, but it is in the book. There was a proposed um, great seal for the United States that had um, one side of it says Anglo-Saxon common law guardian of freedom. Now, if I'll pop this down for a moment. It's up here in the picture of the book, up here on the left in your screen, up in the top. Up, no, not there, right here on that side. But it is in there. And it's talking about how the Anglo-Saxons are the bearer of um, civil law and, and um, constitutional government, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not, not, not quite true. Here's another one that was, uh, this is Jefferson's design. The, the one I just showed you is done by a man named Feroz. But I'm not going to read this for you, but this is Jefferson's design here. And he's showing you the seal of the United States of America, 1776 on the bottom. And then he gives you the symbols for the 13 states. And then he's got Lady Liberty there. Now in the all-seeing eye. Those are all pagan symbols. But for some reason, he did put a symbol on the right there. And that's a symbol out of the Bible. That's Pharaoh riding the chariot with the raised sword. And then that's Moses with the uh, pillar of fire and, and pillar of smoke, cloud of smoke going before them. And this is the crossing of the Red Sea. So, and it says that uh, rebellion um, to tyrants is obedience to God. So even though he's using pagan symbols, he's still mixing it with... Uh, with a reference to the biblical God, even Jefferson. And you will find that quite often in secular religious thinking. I mean, even Woodrow freaking Wilson did this. You were too slow, Charlie. <laughs> Charlie reached for his microphone button. Didn't give me enough time. <laughs> but this is part of what I'm talking about. So the idea that this nation is still going to be drawing from yep, Sandy McLennan and she's Johnny on the spot. There are in this case, Jane on the spot, ready to go with our hashtag. That's a bigger picture of, of that symbol. And uh, Franklin even incorporated this into his proposal for the great seal of America. But what does all this got to do with the rule of law? Well, the whole idea that the rule of law came from the Saxons and it did. Common law came from the Saxons, and a whole lot of other things came from the Saxons, things that I'm not going to go through. They're in the book, but the idea of rep representative republic came from the Saxons. And what do they point out? Well, there was Moses, and then there was a council of 70 elders, and then there was a councilor of so many families of thousands and so many families of hundreds and so many families of tens. And, oh, my God, look, a hierarchy, local government to higher government, and it was all representative. Oh, by the way, a council of 70? On earth as in heaven, there's your divine council worldview reflection. If you know what I'm talking about, wink, wink. So they got the representative government. They got constitutional law. 
Moses wrote down the Constitution and said that the king needs to make a copy of this for himself. You know, he's got to write down the Constitution. Oh, wouldn't that be cool if we could get all of our representatives to have to hand copy the Constitution when they got elected to office? Not just the president, but everybody in office had to write down the Constitution. Well, the king had to write down a copy of the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He had to keep it and he had to meditate on it. Had to listen to it read at least once a year. These things were all principles that came from the Bible, but they were also inherited into the Saxons. Why? Uh, we'll get to that. This is going to be an interesting day for a lot of you. I know what's coming. You don't. <laughs> but the rule of law, that's, you know, they, you know, according to Skousen, comes from Saxons, pagans. Not so much. Secular religious thinking. But anyhow, let's just keep going real quick. You, you know the title, you know, the rule of law and the founding of America? That was just a hook. I wanted to get you in here so I could teach you something different. It's important. It is very important. Because what you're going to learn today is at the root of why we don't chase the rule of law and why we go to the rule of man. Skousen is running on the rule of man in the form of religion. That's why I called it secular religious. This is the Great Seal of America. It's been modified a little bit. It's undergone different, um, in a different variants as it's you know throughout the years and everything. But that symbol right there is very very important, and it means more than what most people think it means. But here's an explanation for us. So let me see if I can get it to do this. Yeah, there we go. So the eagle symbol of strength and power, but always turned to the olive branch as preferring peace, clutching our national symbol for many one. Okay, so the eagle is a symbol of national power, and it's carrying e pluribus unum out of many one. So that's many states or many people, one nation. Okay, I got that. Olive branch, America seeks peace, 13 leaves, 13 olives, you know, for the 13 colonies, right? That's secular explanation. White signifies purity and innocence on the shield. Red on the shield signifies hardiness and valor. And the shield is a representation of our flag, right? Blue is supposed to be for integrity and stuff like that. It says each star and stripe, original 13 colonies, the glory of the 13 original states combining as one nation in history's first attempt at self-government by its people. That's glory of. That's secular thinking, folks. So that Eshushian or whatever represents valor, the shield represents valor and virtue, protecting the eagle with 13 bars, representing America's original 13 states. So the shield is the protection. We have 13 euros and we're prepared to defend our liberty, 13 for each colony. And then we have um, the thing above it, you know, each star and stripe, the radiance is the glory of the, of the states. That's a secular explanation for that symbol. Mm, we're going to show you a different way of looking at it later. But if you're going to look at it that way, that's the law of man. That's Skosin's thinking. That's not mine. Because on the reverse, you have this. This is what you're looking at now. The, the, this page here and this page here, this is Thomas Jefferson's way of looking at things. This is um, the eye of the creator looking upon this new attempt at self-government while watching over and protecting the nation all-seeing eye of Ra, you know, with the glory radiance there of Ra. He, the God of providence, favors our undertakings, Anuit Conceptus. 
Uh, blue uh, signifies a vigilance, perseverance, and justice, you know, the blue background. 13 layers of the unfinished pyramid representing the 13 original colonies building a new nation based on the ideas and concepts of self-government never before attempted. The light of God, the providing providing shining on the new nation, you know, providence based on God. This, this is the whole idea that providence doesn't mean the God of the Bible. It just means God. Be careful with that. The pyramid symbol of strength and durability. 1776 is the year of America's founding, America's birth. So we got that at the base of the pyramid. The new order of the ages, symbol of a new nation built on the concepts of permanent, unalienable, God-given rights for all versus vested, for all versus vested uh, man-made and non-permanent rights, et cetera, et cetera. Nuvis ordum set chlorum. All of this is just, you know, that right there, that's Illuminati thinking, isn't it? which is where we get this stuff from. So every now and then you'll run into your religious freaks and fanatics that are saying it's Illuminati stuff. Well, the all-seeing eye and the Masons and all that good stuff, you know, the founding fathers were Masons, so they all had to be non-religionists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Right? I mean, come on. From a certain point of view, that is Skosin's way of looking at things. Whether he likes it or not, it is. Because when you read his work, that's his way of looking at things from a humanistic perspective. Oh, he's got the trappings of religion in there, but he's very Samaritan here in his, in his dealings with God. He's very, you know, he's turned God into his own little idol. He gives man a whole lot of credit for things. So rule of law, right? All this other good stuff. Let me pop this over here. This is a picture of what's this got to do with everything, Joe? Just chill your britches. Sit down and listen. Hang in there. Jamestown colonists versus the Plymouth colonists. Jamestown, you know, the one that had so much trouble. This is, it was there founded for economic purposes. This is a secular way of looking at it. It was poorly equipped to deal with environmental struggles. Higher class and tradesmen, you know, it was higher class of man. They were uppity ups, plagued by financial difficulty. They didn't have enough money. Diverse cultures, they were English and Native Americans and Powhatan and African Americans. Key individuals there that they name. Now, the Plymouth colonists, well, they were religious purposes. They were well-equipped to deal with environmental struggles. They were a lower class in ministers. They prospered greatly. Diverse cultures, English, Native Americans, Algonquins, Wampanoaga, key individuals needed there. Common grounds, build relations with Native Americans establish a legislative government involved in joint stock trading companies. That's a secular way of looking at this. That is going to be an incomplete picture of why Jamestown failed and Plymouth succeeded. But when you look at it, it's because, well, Jamestown had the upper class, but for some reason they were plagued by financial difficulties and they had, they were poorly equipped and they chose poor ground to settle on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I gotcha. It was just a happenstance of, oh, it's just circumstances. And it had nothing to do with me or, or my fault or my, my, my character or anything like that. It was just, you know, this is, I'm not, I'm the victim of my circumstances. It's not my fault thinking. However, in spite of all their influence and in spite of how much Skosin gives them credit, the two least religious members of our founding fathers, or at least in our worldview, Jefferson and Payne, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, hmm, Thomases, doubting Thomases. I just realized that, Charlie. 
Wow. (laughs) Isn't that something? And two of them, too. Two witnesses. They were both very secular men in their approach to government. They were removed from the stage when it came time to frame the Constitution. Why? Well, maybe because their ideas of rule of law weren't the ones that this nation was supposed to follow. So there's a religious perspective on the founding of America. Let's go back and start all over. The revolution was affected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people. A change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinions, and sentiments and affections of the people was the real American Revolution. The general principles on which the the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. Well, if you're talking Christianity, what God are you talking about? Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other John Adams. In other words, we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by God or the fear of God. We have no government capable of dealing with Jamestown. Our government was made for the people of Plymouth. Gee, does that change anything? Well, you've already read the American Covenant with us if you've been in class. Now, Original Intent by David Barton. Oh, is this a good read. David Barton puts in the parts that Leon, I mean, um, Cleon, Cleon Skousen leaves out. Skousen does all the good secular stuff. Barton comes along and says, yeah, but. So what is Skousen, what did he, what, what fallacy does he commit? Cherry picking. He told half the story. Didn't tell the rest. He's a Mormon. <laughs> Be careful, careful. <laughs> We're not trying to disparage our Mormon friends. We're trying to wake them up to the fact that they followed a half-truth. Am I not allowed to do that since I was one? You can do it, but be gentle about it, because the scriptures tell you to do it with love, grace, and patience. All right, well, just be careful, because they're professional cherry pickers. I know That's all I'm going to say. Then we also have these two books that I've introduced you to before. Defending the Declaration, How the Bible and Christianity Influenced the Writing of the Declaration of Independence by Gary T. Amos. This is going to add a whole lot to Skousen's work that Skousen left out. This will trace the the ideology, the spirit of America that Jefferson devoutly penned it. But don't forget, Jefferson wasn't the only one writing that thing. Adams and Franklin were there too, along with two other men. It was a committee of five, if I remember right. They were all devoutly believers. So Jefferson was very eloquent in penning it, but everything in the Declaration of Independence had previously been espoused by deeply devout Christian thinkers. 
every aspect of the Declaration of Independence came from Christian theological thinking. And then there's Christianity and the Constitution, the Faith of Our Founding Fathers by John Edsmo. This will show you how every principle in your, in your Constitution came from Christian thinking, Christian theology. Science comes from Christian thinking, Christian theology. Christian, just like Adam said, the country was founded on the basic principles of Christianity. Now, here's the part that everybody misses. So, Joe, if we're such a Christian nation, why do we have all these problems? Well, if you were to read your Bible, you'd understand that there's a lot more going on here than you've been made aware of. Today, I'm going to bring you some prophecy, some history, and a different perspective. Truth is true, depending on your perspective, right? You know, what's true is this, that, or the other thing from a certain point of view. So, you know, my truth is not your truth. That's little truth. That's little T truth. There is such thing as a capital T truth. And a lot of times, we're not capable of determining one from the other because we're stuck in this material world with our perspectives. And our perspective can distort our understanding of the reality. That does not mean that there is not such thing as a reality. How many of y'all saw the Truman Show? You know, this is where he's put in an artificial town. And the movie films the main character, Truman. And everybody in the real world is watching Truman. And he doesn't realize he's in a TV show until later in the movie. Well, for him, the world that they created for him was true. But that does not mean that the world outside watching him did not exist. Later on, he was able to discern it, which is a hint to us that if we try hard enough and if we're paying attention, we can discern some things about the objective world around us, the objective reality around us. Now, we may not be able to see it totally clearly in this world, in this, this life, but we can perceive some things about it, just like Truman did. But that doesn't mean that his reality was false to him. It was true to him, but it wasn't the, the objective reality that existed outside his world. Just because he didn't see it, just because he didn't perceive it, didn't know about it, does not mean it did not exist. That's the problem we have in our world today. Just because we don't acknowledge it does not mean the spirit world does not exist. Just because we think that all reality is based on perspective does not mean that an objective reality does not exist. We have accepted lies. This is how the, the true Christian-based or Judeo-Christian-based thinker will look on the founding of the United States of America. Incidentally, these three books here on the shelf, there's two red ones and a blue one there. Those are also great details of the founder's writings about how Christianity framed and established this country. They go hand in hand. And those are actually, these three books are written to be classes at homeschooled teaching. They teach American history. Skousen did good work with his two books for hooking somebody who's still stuck in the secular world. But if you don't continue on with some of the other stuff I've shown you, you'll get stuck in that secular perspective and you've missed half the picture. And what results is what we're seeing today. 
And if you're only looking at it from the secular perspective, you cannot explain it. If you look at it from the perspective I'm about to show you, you'll be able to explain it. You should be able to understand it as well. So we're going to start here, Genesis 22, 17. This is a promise that God, Yahweh, makes to Abraham. I will surely bless you and will greatly multiply your seed like the stars of the heavens and like the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. In other words, they're going to be countless. Abraham's descendants will be countless. And they will possess the gates of their enemies, their enemies' defenses. They'll take over their enemies' lands, their enemies' possessions. We can count the Jews today. We know roughly how many Jews there are in the world. Well, if we can count them, that's not the stars in the heavens or the sands of the seashore. Because we don't count the stars in the heavens. We make an estimate based on density per square inch of the observable sky. And then we just do a calculation. In other words, we take a scientific wild aid to guess at it. So if we can count the Jews, did God lie to Abraham? Or are we missing something? I think we're missing something. The origin of the Saxon people. Remember, they're pagans, right? According to Jefferson, pagans. This is from a website, Hope of Israel Ministries, Ecclesia of Yahovah or Yahweh. That's just another way. It's an inappropriate way, in my opinion, of saying Yahweh. But anyway, it's by Raymond F. McNair. You can look that up if you want later. Many simply cannot believe the plain record of the ancient peoples who came to the British Isles. They just can't seem to believe that these peoples could really have been descendants of Shem. We shall notice the same tendency for critics of early Scottish-Irish history. They think the early history, which they call folklore, of these peoples cannot be true when it connects such peoples directly with the lands and peoples mentioned in the Bible. However, Alfred the Great, who was himself a Saxon, son of Isaac, traced his genealogy right back to Shem, or Sem, and on back to Adam. What's that got to do with anything, Joe? Well, first of all, it means Jefferson was wrong when he called the Saxons pagans. They weren't. They were apostates. They were apostates to the point that they were no longer recognizable as Hebrews, right? Wrong. What Jefferson found in the rule of law, common law, and et cetera, et cetera, was the vestiges of a perverted law of Moses. And if you look at it that way, you will see it. It will jump right out of the pages of history and smack you right in the face. We also know from those who do etymological work into the word of Saxon, it is a derivative of Isaac. Mm -hmm. Anywhere where you see an SC or an SX, you are probably dealing with the derivative of the name Isaac. If you're dealing with the derivative of the name Isaac, you're dealing with a Hebrew. There are other peoples that are known this way as well. The Celts, the Irish. They are descendant of both the tribe of Dan and Judah. We know this from history. That's one of the gems of the original book, Judah's Scepter and Joseph's Birthright. We've shown you this before. We've gone over it. But in the back of it, there's a genealogy. And it traces the king of England all the way back to Adam. And yeah, these people are pretty good with this genealogy stuff. They did the work. And you can do that. 
We also know from history about the prophet, the scribe, and the princess who came to Ireland right about the time in history that Jeremiah disappeared into Egypt. And the prophet brought the stone of destiny with him. In the Bible, we call it the Bethel stone. That's the stone that Jacob laid his head on. That's the stone that the people carried with them forever and ever, amen, afterwards. If you're paying attention to your Bible really close, it is most likely the stone that Moses struck and then the stone that Moses talked to that provided water. Because from where does the water, flowing water of, of life come from? From Jesus, right? From the word of God, right? What does Bethel mean? Charlie, pop in here. What it's does, actually Beit El. Yeah, what's it mean? The house of El or house of God. Yes. And other than the temple and tabernacle, it's the only thing in the Bible called the house of God where Yahweh dwelled. So he dwelled with that stone with them from the time of Jacob until the time of the tabernacle. And the people kept that stone the whole way. And that stone right now is in the, the seat of the throne of the royal family of England. And if you want to trace this, I have a book called The Princess Tephi. And it, it's a piece of poetry, the book of Tephi. It tells you about the princess. What's all that got to do with everything? Well, the princess coming back to Ireland, that mended a breach, which is part of the true gospel. The true gospel is the kingdom of Yahweh. It is the reversing of all breaches. That mended the breach of Tamar's children. We're going to talk about those here in a little bit. What's this got to do with the rule of law, Joe? Everything. Everything. You have to know the prophetic nature of the peoples you're dealing with. Prophetic nature means that they're all going to have certain characteristics and tendencies. Just like Esau. He says to be a red man when he comes out all red and ruddy and everything. Well, Judah, his father, he's the patriarch of the tribe of Judah. We know from the Hebrew language that there's something about the King David. He's red and ruddy. He's connected to the colors red. And we know from archaeological evidence and, and remains of bodies that we've uncovered that something about the tribe of Judah is connected with red hair. Well, one half of the tribe of Judah had already migrated to Ireland. And after Jeremiah is exiled at the fall of, of the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, in the, when they go to captivity in Babylon, they migrate back to Ireland. And this is in secular history. And when they do, they reunite the, the princess Tephi of the breach line of Tamar's children back to the firstborn with the red hand, red, red scarlet around the hand. They, they put those two lines back together. They mend the breach. So the house of Judah is all back together again in its proper order. That's going to be important to you here in a few minutes. Or it should be. But that's where your red-haired Irishmen come from. They're descendants of Judah. They're Jews. There's a lot of history there. I'm not going to trace it all today. What's it got to do with America? Pay attention. I'm going to cover that for you. One thing. The royal crown of Israel. I mean, of, of Israel, well, the royal crown, the, the royal coat of arms for England. You got a lion and a unicorn. 
Unicorn comes from a mistranslation of the Hebrew word for bull. Should have been a lion and a bull. Bull is the symbol of Ephraim, the house of Israel, the lion, the house of Judah. You have all of Israel put back together. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy. So Israel has a nasty habit of taxing the northern kingdom, Ephraim. And Ephraim has a nasty habit of revolting, wanting to be free. What happened between England and the colonies? There was a revolt, wasn't there? The colonies separated from England. The house of Judah now remains in England. The house of Israel separated over a tax revolt. That's the prophetic nature. And the, the South in America said it was over slavery. No, it wasn't. It was over states' rights and taxes. It was over states' rights, but ultimately it was over taxes. And there was almost a separation there, the prophetic nature of the two peoples. But because America was the seat of Ephraim at that time, Ephraim and Manasseh together with the house of Joseph, they didn't separate. I'm not saying it's a fulfillment of the prophecy, but I'm telling you that there is a pattern in the biblical prophecy that says Ephraim will no longer devour Manasseh. Manasseh will no longer devour Ephraim. So that could be talking to the pattern where the North and the South and the United States joined back together and cooperated again. Still animosity there, but we're not devouring each other. We're not fighting each other. Not in open combat. Follows the patterns. This country is the seat of the house of Israel. It's Ephraim. And Benjamin Franklin told us this. He told us that this nation is new Israel. He did not mean replacement theology. He meant this is the land that was promised to Ephraim. Franklin knew his Bible better than we do today. Not bad for a deist, huh? So what's all that got to do with everything? Okay, back to this. This is another, Charlie, you might want to have your microphone on here for just in case. This is another image of the Great Seal of America, of the United States. E pluribus unum, out of one many, one kingdom, one body of Christ. The eagle, remember that the eagle's wings, two eagle's wings that lift up Israel and carry her off into the wilderness for 1,290 days, that if you've been following us on Wednesdays, you know that ends on 1776. Olive branch, is that not a symbol of Israel, Charlie? Oh yes, very much. The 13 colonies, also how many tribes? 13. 13 olives. Oops. Yeah. Arrows. Isn't that a symbol of Ephraim as well as Manasseh? Manasseh? Yeah, I, I will fill your quiver with arrows. Yeah. Bend the bow Ephraim. of Judah, fill the quiver with arrows. Okay. So the radiance there, that's the sun. I have 13 stars for 13 tribes. And then look at the little circle, the little circles right there. That's a dual representation. That's supposed to be a cloud. That's the cloud that the rays are not only the sun, but that's also the, the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. But notice how the, the cloud is arranged, little puffy circles, the phases of the moon. Charlie, where would we see the 13 tribes and the sun and the moon all over oh. an individual figurehead? <laughs> does that remind you of anything? Yeah. Hmm. That's does, interesting. Does that picture come into mind? <laughs> Yeah, that's one. Yeah. I was thinking of another. Thing, I know. But, just don't get ahead of the yeah. lesson plan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that too. This, folks, that right there, that is a modern figurative symbol of this. Now, if you're looking at the picture, 
this is Bible. Thanks, Charlie. Bible scholars, pay attention real quick here. If all you're going to do is word studies and picture studies, you're not going to see the connection. If you're doing concept studies, these are the same picture. This is Genesis 37, 9. Then he had yet another dream and informed his brothers of it and said, Behold, I have had yet another dream and beheld the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars. Well, he's Joseph. So he's two more stars in and of himself. And he's talking about Israel. All of Israel, all of the whole of Israel. Jacob will bow down to Joseph. For many, many years, that nation right there was the seat of the Christian movement in the world. Before that, it was England. Then it became us. We were the primary evangelical force in the world for many years. So all of Christendom looked at, to us, not the Vatican. Not the Vatican. Yes, ma'am. A uh, quick question. Mm -hmm. I've noticed with the stars, four of them are kind of to Stop. the right. Just stylization. It has no significance. Oh, okay. I was just curious about that. Other variations of this where all 13 stars are above. All right. I told you it's gone through different, you know, different variations, but the symbology has remained the same. Okay. Just want to make sure. No worries. But so that picture right there, that works, still works, which brings us to this. I told you I'd explain this to you. All right. Arab people came through whom? Ishmael, Abraham's first son. The Jewish people come through whom? Isaac, Abraham's second son. Why is that important? Well, first of all, this makes all Ishmaelites descendants of Abraham. Something real quick to understand. Abraham is told your descendants will be numerous as the sands of the sea. Then he is told that the birthright and his name will be traced through Isaac. Birthright, inheritance. But that does not mean that the Ishmaelites are not sons of Abraham. They are. That's important because it's prophetic nature. These people are all going to have a role to play. I'm going to explain a lot of this to you here as we get going. So the Ishmaelites, patriarch of the Muslims, Islam claims this, not me. This is not me saying this. This, this is an accurate portrayal. God said, Yahweh says, Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. Verse 20, I have blessed Ishmael and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. Ishmael, the son of the slave woman fathered by Abraham. Ishmael has been a great nation. Now, great does not necessarily mean good, big, powerful, renowned. Babylon was a great nation. Egypt was a great nation. This has happened. This prophecy has been fulfilled. An Arab means, in Arabic, it means does not mix, which is exactly a name for his prophetic nature. Wild donkey of a man, stubborn, pig-headed, God, just absolutely stubborn does his own thing his hands against everyone's hand in other words and he shall 
dwell over or and against all his kin, kinsmen. He's going to be constantly fighting. He's going to live by the sword. And he'll either rule people or he'll be constant battle with them. It's even in his name. Charlie might want to help us through this one, but this is this is the Hebrew for Ishmael, but it's also in the paleo, which is, says hand, consumer, destroy nations and will be seen by God, the shepherd. So you are God who sees, but Ishmael. You want to add anything to that one there, Charlie, or is that one just new to you as well? Well, it's not new to me. It it uh, it makes sense in this. You know, I, I don't get into this. I know, lot, I, I, but this one does fit. Yeah, I don't like to get into this too much either. But there are times where you do need to yes. pay attention. Yeah, th this this makes sense. I mean, and it it does follow with the uh, pictographic Hebrew. So so basically, what it's saying here is that Ishmael's hand is going to consume or destroy the nations or Goyim and God, and it's going to be seen by God, the shepherd. He's going to watch over him and watch what he does. Why is that important for that right there? Ishmael and Islam versus Christianity and Isaac. This nation was born in a battle with what nation, what, what people who were we fighting at the time this country was born? The Barbary pirates. Yes. Muslims. This nation was born into a battle with Islam. We have been fighting Islam ever since. What does Islam call this country, Charlie? <laughs> well, which one? But <laughs> the, the, the great, the great Satan, or the yeah, great, yeah. But they call us the great, great Satan. Satan. Yeah. And Israel's the lesser Satan. Yeah. Uh, and prophetically, true. which is the two? Which is the larger or more powerful of the two kingdoms? Israel is the greater or the lesser? Lesser. Mm, kingdom of Israel is the greater militarily. Well, well strength-wise, size-wise. Yeah. I meant 10 tribes versus two. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Ephraim I is this, Yeah. Okay. I know what you're thinking. I, I, I know I, where I, you're I, thinking. Okay. I see where you're but going. But the way, the way Satan's going to look at us, Israel's the great Satan to him from a certain point of view. It's perspective, yes. folks. Okay. So from gotcha. Satan's perspective, this country is the great Satan. So this, this is prophetic. So wherever we're at, we're going to be struggling with Islam. Are we still struggling with Islam today, Charlie? <laughs> yeah and uh, we're not doing too good all right thanks charlie jacob versus esau that was one group of people here's a battle for the holy land jacob versus esau this is another breach remember jacob he's on the right esau's on the left esau's a fighter you know hunter he's got a bow and an arrow jacob's a shepherd he's a herdsman jacob buys Esau's inheritance for a bowl of soup, red beans, red soup. There's that red again. Adam, earth, materialistic. So there's all sorts of, in the Hebrew, there's all sorts of wordplay going on here. And it's all meant to mix and blend ideas and thinking. But here's the prophecies over. It says, and Isaac, his father, this is a prophecy over uh, Esau. Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heaven from above. In other words, he's going to live in luxury. Esau's going to live in luxury. He's a materialistic person. And by the sword shalt thou live and shall serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. So whenever Esau becomes strong enough, 
he throws off the religious aspects of Jacob, his younger brother. When Jacob lays down, Esau shakes off his yoke. What's that? It's that. Esau, materialistic world versus Jacob, spiritual. That's the biblical lesson right there. That's the spirit lesson that we need to be learning. So you still have that in this country as well. Then you have this. As soon as we get done with this, we'll take the break. Missing the Canaanites in plain sight. The media need to read their Bibles. Missing the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. Numbers 33:55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from you, then it will come about that those who you let remain of them will be like thorns in your eyes and like pricks in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. Doesn't necessarily mean just the holy land. This prophetically can mean wherever Israel is, Jew or lost tribe, they're going to have trouble with Canaanites. And it seems to be that that's exactly where we're at. We have trouble with Ishmaelites, apostates. We have trouble with Edomites, materialistic secular humanists. We have trouble with Canaanites, pagans, all three of which are lawless in the eyes of Yahweh, of God. Wherever you find God's people, you're going to find these three spiritual enemies. This is all prophetic nature. So when you look at the United States today and you think you see just a big old chaos ball going on and nothing makes any sense, it won't to you if you're looking at it like Skousen looks at it. If all you're looking at is secular or secular religious eyes, you won't see the order in it. If you look at this through a biblical lens, the order is perfectly clear. Yahweh's people have lain down. We've become apostate. So we're under the influences of other apostates that claim the Bible. And that's not just going to be it, um, the Muslims. That's going to be, well, our Mormon friends and our Catholics and in part our Protestants and any, any apostasy, anybody who's gotten away from the way, the instruction booklet. We're going to have problems with Edomites, secular humanists of all forms, socialists. And we're going to have problems with pagans which are really actually those are believers that have become so perverted in their religious tendencies as to not even be recognizable anymore. They, they don't claim Yahweh. They don't, they don't claim anything like that. At least the Muslims still claim the patriarchs and stuff. You know, they're, they're just, you can trace them to the Bible. You can see where that started from a perversion of scripture. Pagans are so wildly off base that they're unrecognizable anymore. Druids, Druids came from the northern tribes of Israel. They become pagan. They're so unrecognizable. But the Saxons, if you paid attention, the Saxons were still recognizable as following the rules of Moses. And this is something that Jefferson missed because he looks with secular eyes. Come back. I'm going to explain to you how this affects America today. Don't leave us. This is important. Real quick before we leave, comment on the board from Sailor Sun. We won't drive them out. We don't care if they live among us and destroy society. We didn't care back then either. The Israelites didn't finish off the Canaanites. Instead, they married into them. 
they wanted to share in their material wealth. The prophetic nature of the peoples has not changed. See you in six minutes.
Okay, we're back, and we're going to get right going again. Don't know how long we'll last today, but we should get get past the half hour mark. I want to jump into this real quick for you. This is a uh, just a stylized uh, map, but this is from the Royal Lines of Zara and Ferez Judah. Um, Zara and Ferez, that's the breach I was telling you about. When the first twin, this is Tamar's children in the Bible. Pay attention, please. Don't, don't dismiss this. When the first twin reached out their hand, the, the, the nursemaid put a red string, a red thread around that child's hand. That's firstborn. Get the birthright. Well, that child doesn't come out first, okay? And that's important because Zara ends up migrating up to England and in Ireland and area. And that red thread becomes part of British lore. And that red thread is even woven. Anywhere you go with British, there's a red thread running through just about everything they do. It's part of their national identity. And there were even red threads woven into the cords, the ropes of their ships. That's a, that's a direct line, the, the scarlet cord right there in the picture. That's a direct line back to Zara. Now that shows you all the kings for Zara, the Cretan kings and the Trojan kings in this. All, yes, all these ancient peoples, you know, the Greeks and the Romans and all, you think they got no connection to, uh, to Israel? You're wrong. They do. We've just not taught this in history. We've erased it. So the Trojan kings, the Frankish kings, the Scandinavian kings, the house of uh, Skjold, the house of uh, Wecta, kings of Denmark, kings of Greece, and Philip. It goes all the way down to there. And then there's a branch that comes back off of the house of Wecta, that line there, and it ties into Albert and Victoria, 1840. And that's important because Victoria also ties back into the royal house of Judah. Now the line up top by the Cretan kings that's uh, the Malaysian kings, and that ties back into the line of Perez or Ferez. We get David from there. In the of David, you get Solomon and Nathan. Nathan gives you Jesus Christ. But it's also Levi and Aaron are married into this line. And from there, you're also going to get Joseph of Arimathea. He's part, he's the uncle of Jesus. He's, he's going to give us a direct descendant back into Victoria, Albert and Victoria. It ties us back into and re, uh, fixes the breach between these two bloodlines. But also Solomon gives us Zedekiah, kings of Ireland and kings of Scotland. Jeremiah was told that he would overturn three times. He would uproot and overturn three times. He picked the things up from the nation of Israel, planted them in Ireland, then into Scotland, then into England. He uprooted and planted three times. He is prophetic mission was fulfilled through what he did in life. All of this gives us a direct lineage from the houses of Israel and Judah into the American people. Why is that important? Because if you're looking at our history with the biblical, the Judeo-Christian biblical worldview, then you see Jamestown and Plymouth not as a happenstance, but it's a spiritual thing. It's not an accident of, of your situation and your circumstances. Notice Jamestown is a warrior, came with arms. Plymouth is a preacher, came with the Bible. One succeeded, one didn't. Live by the sword, you die by the sword. One side seeks wealth and might, the other seeks God and peace. And there's your pictures. Jamestown on the left, Plymouth on the right. Warriors, forts, the conquest, booty, 
you know, spoils of, of conquest and everything. On the left, live by the sword. On the right, community, fellowship, peace, union with other peoples. And contrary to what the seculars think, the ones on the left did not seek harmony and treaty with the Indians. They dealt two-faced, two, uh, fork-tonguedly with the Indians. The Plymouth, they, they actually bought the land they took from the Indians fairly in a, in a treaties that they kept. It's a spirit thing, folks, and it still is today. And here's where we get into some of this stuff that I told you, prophetic natures. Why was the worship of Baal and Asherah a constant struggle for the Israelites? I don't know, but it was. And we were told that if you did not drive the Canaanites from the land, they would constantly be a thorn in your flesh. And that's where Paul, you know, Paul was blind. Paul was this. Paul, maybe, maybe. But thorn in your flesh is a Hebrew idiom born from this passage in Scripture. You didn't drive the, the Canaanites out of the land, so they're going to th constantly be a thorn in your eye. In other words, the things you look, they're going to be a temptation. and be a thorn in your side, in your flesh, and the things you do. It's another way of saying in your head and in your hand. They will constantly tempt you away from Yahweh. So why was this a problem for Israel? Because they did not do what they were told. They did not obey. Baal worship. Baal is mentioned widely in the Old Testament as the primary pagan idol of the Phoenicians, also Canaanites, same area, often associated with the heathen goddess Ashtoreth. This photo shows a Baal fictitious image from the ancient stone carvings. He was the supposed son of the non-existent god Dagon. Charlie, where have we heard about Dagon before? Fish heads, fish heads, roly-poly fish heads, eat them up, yum. Isn't that something like what the hat that the Pope wears? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a Dagon uh, oh. hat thing. Yeah. So paganism found its way into the church. That would make us apostate in a lot of ways, wouldn't it? Uh, yep. So we didn't get rid of the Canaanites, so we still have them as a thorn in our flesh. That's a fact. Jack, you got to finish that quote from Strike. Oh, yes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you. Unfortunately, to their eventual bitter regret, the Israelites become deeply, deeply involved in the cults, cults of Baals. The evil worship included perverted sexual behavior and even sacrificing their infants in fire. Baal is also a god of material gain. So we're talking about material gain, wealth, perverted sexual behavior, and sacrificing their infants in the fire. This is Astra. She goes by many names. She's the queen of heaven. That name is in the Bible. You will find that title. She's Isis, Tara, Astaroth, Ah, E, Aphrodite, Venus, Liberatus. She's the mother of harlots. She's Ishtar, Durga, Diana, Isabel, Frigga, Gaia, Easter, Artemis, Estra, Asherah, Hathor, Astara, Great Mother Magna Mater. She's also the Madonna. Be careful with this. And Hezekiah had all these astropoles cut down in Israel for a reason. This is Moloch from Psalm 106, 34 through 43. They did not destroy the people as the Lord had commanded them, the peoples, the Canaanites, but mingled with the nations and imitated their ways, mingled with the Goyim, the pagans, the, the non-Israelites. And they imitate their ways. They served their idols, were ensnared by them. They sacrificed to demons their own sons and daughters, shedding innocent blood, the blood of their own sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, desecrating the land with bloodshed. 
They defiled themselves by their actions and became adulterers by their conduct, spiritual adulterers, worshiping somebody other than Yahweh. So the Lord Yahweh grew angry with his people, abhorred his own heritage. He handed them over to the nations, to the Goyim, and their adversaries ruled over them. Esau, Esau shook off his chains. Their enemies oppressed them, kept them under subjugation. subjugation. Many times did he rescue them, but they kept rebelling and scheming and were brought low by their own guilt. You can curse the land through this stuff too, folks. This is, have you read, Rabbi Khan's got a new book, The Jeremiah Mystery. You might want to read that, especially if you've read Return of the Gods. The reality of spiritual warfare. It's an invisible war. It is very real. Whether or not you accept it or recognize it, it is irrelevant. It accepts and recognizes you. You can ignore the government. You know, an Aristotle, I think, or one of the Greek philosophers said, you can ignore politics all you want. Politics won't ignore you. You can ignore the invisible war. The invisible war will not ignore you. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual weakness and high, wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6.12. And folks... If you're looking at the things we've been describing today simply with secular eyes, you're not going to be able to explain it in a coherent, consistent, linear pattern that makes sense out of human history. If you're looking with biblical lenses that understand prophecy and the prophetic nature of peoples and the spiritual nature of those peoples, everything we see in history makes perfect sense. It's exactly what we could have predicted should have predicted what we see in this country right now makes perfect sense spiritually in the spiritual warfare. When we look at the, what we call the peg, I mean, the, the progressive movement, the, the progressive agenda, it's been on a constant uh, arc of agenda or an arc of movement throughout human history for over 150 years, going on 200 years now. More, if you go back to Marx and folks, Human hands cannot do that. Human hands can barely stay consistent within the period of a single lifetime. Are you the same person today as you were when you were 16 years old? I hope not. Well, if, you, if you're going to change just in that brief period of time, how the heck are you expect a human-driven agenda to stay constant for 200 years? It doesn't happen. That's contrary to human nature. So what's guiding that agenda? There are spiritual forces behind this. That is Occam's solution. That is the easiest solution. And notice Occam's razor doesn't say the most acceptable solution is the easiest. It says the easiest solution is the simplest one that explains the most with the least manifestations of, you know, gyrations and gymnastics. The least mental, you know, manipulation to get there. Well, in this case, Occam's razor says that the spiritual warfare is real. Well. That's what this is all about. This is one of his best books, in my opinion. Oh my gosh, have you got to read this? He shows you what we've done in this country. We're following our prophetic nature. We're chasing after the Baals again, the gods of Baal, the gods of the Canaanites. And we're going to reap the whirlwind just like we did as a prophetic people back when the fall of the Northern Kingdom. The Harbinger. Jonathan Kahn wrote The Harbinger about 9-11. That was written to the Northern Kingdom before they fell. 
as a final warning. We've repeated it. Then the Assyrian came to destroy them. Obama prophetically and spiritually fits the description of the Assyrian perfectly. What did Obama say his mission was? To destroy the United States, to fundamentally transform it. Were you listening to yesterday's show? It's lawlessness. It's all lawlessness and spiritual adultery, harlotry. Everybody's, Joe, how do we fix it? How do we fix it? I keep telling you, you have got, just like Skousen said, you have got to return back to the founder's original formula. What did the founders tell us the original formula was? Well, for crying out loud, people, it's right here on the road to Concord on your homework. Go up here, right up here to the left. You go to the road to Concord, you're up here on the left. It says the Christian Foundation. You click on the founder's word to the con uh, words, the connection between God, liberty, and the founding of America. You scroll, scroll down that one. John Jay, first Supreme Court justice. You know, he's in charge of the Supreme Court. He says, no human society has ever been able to maintain both order and freedom both cohesiveness and liberty, apart from the moral precepts of the Christian religion applied and accepted by all the classes. Should our republic ever forget this fundamental precept of governance, men are certain to shed their responsibilities for licentiousness, and this great experiment will then surely be doomed. We've already shed our responsibilities for physical pleasures. You scroll down here, you'll see the three quotes I've already read you from John Adams. John Quincy Adams is, is not the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon the earth? That's the kingdom of Yahweh, folks. That's the gospel. He knows it. He knows our, his Bible better than we do. That is laid on the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity. John Quincy Adams this is Samuel Adams. I'm not even going to read that one. I'm going to go to this. This is the full quote from Samuel Adams in his essay, American Independence. He says, this day, I trust the reign of political Protestantism will commence. We have explored the temple of royalty and found that the idol we have bowed down to, humans, secular humanism, has eyes which see not, ears that hear not, or our prayers, and a heart like the nether millstone. In other words, we were praying to ourselves. We were looking to man to be his own savior, and it was an idol. So it says, we have this day restored the sovereign, Yahweh, to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and with propitious eyes, behold his subjects, assuming that freedom of thought and dignity of self-direction, which he bestowed on them from the rising to the setting sun, may his kingdom come. May the gospel be. How do those men, how, how is it those men are thought to be totally secularists in the way Skousen sees it? If you're going to ignore their clear language of the path to liberty under, under self-rule, if you're going to ignore it and chase after your own, you're going to go right back to where Samuel Adams said you're going to go. Eyes that don't see, a mouth that doesn't speak, ears that don't hear you. You're going to go back to an idol. Man, secular humanism. Or you're going to chase after paganism, which is what we're doing now. We're chasing after paganism. <sighs> the principalities of Baal, Astra and Moloch. Baal is a material god. There he is, right there. His symbol is a bull or a bull with a sun disc between his horns, you know, like a halo. Yeah, you won't find halos in the Bible. 
that's sun worship. That's that's raw. That's Baal. That's something else that's worked its way into the Christian world. This symbology has meaning. That meaning is spiritual. It's part of the spiritual war. You can ignore it all you want. It will not ignore you. So we have Baal worship in this house, in this in this country again. That's Astra. Remember, Astra is sexual perversion. What the heck is that if not sexual perversion? And it flaunts. We're going to do what we want to do, and you can't destroy us because you said you'll never flood the world again, God. We resist. Uh-huh. He said he'd never destroy the world by water again. You know what that leaves? Fire. I can call down fire or rain. Well, rain is now a blessing, not a curse. So guess what's left? What else do we have here? Oh, yeah. Abortion is sacred, and the Supreme Court can't take that away from us. Planned Parenthood. You know, the ones who want to kill just all but 500 million human beings on the planet. The eugenicists. If you do this, if you Google or you go do a search, you will find that the left considers abortion, and they call it a sacrament. That's religious in connotation, folks. Calling it sacred makes it religious. That's Moloch worship. Say, well, we're not sacrificing our children through the fire. doesn't matter how you do it. By the way, we do send a lot of our aborted babies' bodies to be burned in incinerators now. That's passing the children through the fire. Look to the concept rather than the, the way it's manifest. You'll see more clearly. This nation is guilty of these things right here. Now let me take you back to this. I'm going to read it to you in a different way. This is the national emblem again, right? Let me bump this down. I got another book. It says, Who Are You, America? Time to Lift Your Prophetic Veil. Right there. So what do we have here? First of all, you have the azure blue background. <laughs> That's the color of Israel, folks. That dark color blue represents God, Yahweh. So you have the pillar of clouds, or in this case, the moon. Both moon and the stars and the sun. Well, that's the clouds of Exodus 14, 19. You have 13 letters in the scroll, a pluribus unum, meaning one nation from many people. You have the kingdom of Yahweh, also known as the body of Christ. 13 olives and 13 olive leaves. Olive tree is a symbol of Israel. Olive branch signifying peace. Bundles of arrows signifying power to fight. It's also going to hook you back to Ephraim. You have 13 of them. The shield with the 13 bars and stripes representing 13 original English colonies. The shield is Torah. That's a protection. That's what protects God's people. 13 stars shaped like the star of David. Not in this case, but they are in some of them in the more modern one. The pillar of fire from the Exodus. Also the rays of the sun, the moon, and the stars above Joseph's head. All of that is in that picture. And it's all born on eagle's wings. Israel will be born on eagle's wings. This Right here in the center, the 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 moon's moon cloud, the rays and the stars, they sit. That's Israel. That's a figurative image of Israel between the wings. Israel's born on eagles' wings. So let me pop this up here now. It says uh, Matthew twenty four twenty nine through thirty, the glorious return. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. <laughs> Folks, that last part, Son of Man coming in the clouds in the sky, that's Daniel. The first part is Joel 3. I'm not going to read it all to you, but if you're religious in nature, you want to read Joel 3. You want to know why? Joel 3, it is very likely has already been fulfilled. Joel 3 is about Judah. It mentions the sons of Judah in my inheritance. Yahweh says, my inheritance, Israel. That's the land of Israel. That's the nation of Israel. There's no Jacob and there's no house of Israel in this passage. This is talking about a time when Israel is back and restored in the land. But Joel is also about a time right before the second coming. Notice what our passage had said after the tribulation of those times. Were you in on the class where um, we showed you how the tribulation has to end before the end times starts? Were you in on that class? I hope you were. I know it's a Worship Wednesday and not everybody wants to watch those. But this show builds on itself. And what this show does is connects the Bible to the real world. This is apologetics work. And if you're going to miss any of it, you're not going to see clearly what it is I'm trying to show you. But this right here, this right here is telling you what season you're in. And so does that. The moon talks to Israel. The solar eclipse, the sun talks to the world. You know, Baal worship, the sun. The moon is a picture of Israel. It's the church. The church reflects the light of the sun. In that case, the sun being the, the gospel, the son of God. You have to be careful. Satan grabs these images and perverts them and mirrors them and mimics them. Context is everything. Like we said earlier in the show, context is everything. Perspective is everything. But notice what happened here in 2014 and 2015. We had, uh, these are tetrads. This is when the blood moons, which speak to Israel, these are blood moons are trouble for Israel, for the Jews and for the house of Israel, for the Hebrew people. And uh, solar eclipses are trouble for the Gentile nations. And then comets, times of violent change. We had a comet in 2013. We had another comet this year, a green one, very, very rare. We're being warned. We're ignoring it. The pillars of the earth are being shaken. We're not waking up. We are in the spiritual conditions the Bible tells us God would do to wake his people. And his people are slumbering. They're asleep. Their lamps are out. They're out of oil. They're going to awake to the sound of the trumpets and to the bridegroom and his party coming through the streets to come get his bride, and they're going to be locked out of the supper. America's going to get locked out. We're going to wonder why. The founding fathers left us clear warning. We ignored it. We looked to the secular solutions. Look to these 28 points. Where's the spiritual lessons behind those 28 points? The founding fathers bring them up all the time. When you read them, we filter that out. So when I try to bring this up, everybody's asking me, what do we do, Joe? I tell you what to do, and you don't want to hear me. Nobody ever listens to the prophet. I'm not a prophet. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a prophet. Far from it. But nobody listens to them. 
Why should a teacher expect to be listened to? This is not a joke. This is not a game. Have you noticed this? These are the tetrads, too, dealing with that same time period. This is just the one around 2011s, 2014, 2015. Look at the symmetry. This is, this is not done to force it to make it look like this. This is actually what happened. If you can't see your chalkboard, this is not easy to understand. This is You need this one visually. But these tetrads are also falling on Jewish high holy days. Say, well, now we need Easter and Christmas now. Then why did the tetrads fall on the high holy days for the Hebrews? Why is it still linked to the Sabbath? Why are the stars and the moon and the heavens still talking to Yahweh's people in biblical terms. If you were allowed to change the Sabbath to Sunday and change the holy holidays, why didn't the why didn't the heavens change with you? Huh? The heavens haven't changed because Torah hasn't changed. The Sabbaths have not changed. The feasts have not changed. Look at the symmetry. This was done from the foundation of the universe. This arrangement was going to happen from the moment time began. And you're going to tell me that there is no guiding intelligence in this universe? Really? All right. What about that? 23rd September 2017. Again, Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets. Charlie, pop yourself on here audibly. All right. Rosh Hashanah, this happening 22nd. Is this got any significance with scripture in the Hebrew world? Well, I would say Yom Teruah instead of Rosh Hashanah. But yes, uh, this is significant. What's the trumpet warning about? And (laughs) that's a warning of Yahweh's power and might, isn't it? Yes, the shofar blasts were the watchmen on the tower signaling that the enemy has been sighted. Get your stuff together. It's time to fight. So the virgin here, the body of Christ, with the church at her feet, clothed in the sun, and what's right there in the middle? Jupiter, the king planet, king planet, right in her midst where her belly would be. She's pregnant. This is the sign of the son of man. And then Mercury, Mars, Venus, and Regulus, Regulus being the king star, are all lined up in Leo in Judah, house of Judah. So, folks, this is the sign of the son of man. The, the moon went red, the sun went dark, and then the sign of the Son of Man appeared in the sky. Your Bible prophecy, the last warning before he returns, has been given to you, and you've ignored it because you're looking for something else. You want an answer as to what to do? Return, repent, seek his face, get on your knees and admit that he's in charge. This sign here was set at the foundation of the world to land on that day. You know how, folks, do you know how rare that alignment is in the sky? And, and you know, I got a firefly going off right now. I'm just going to throw this out there. This is just for you. But we need to look at this because this may solve our calendar problems. Yes, it might. Especially given the one beforehand. That's right. That's right. This and the last slide. Well, then I'll give you the simple solution for this one. The tetrads all land on the Jewish high holy days of the Orthodox Jewish church. Well, that says something. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. 
And that goes back all the way back into the 16th century and the 15th century. Folks, how much clearer a sign do we need? That right there is just more of the picture. That's explaining to you what you're looking at. That is the sign of the Son of Man. That was in the heavens for a 90-minute period at the time of Yeshua, Jesus' birth. We know when he was born. We know to the year. We know to the year when he was crucified. We know all of this stuff. You're told that it's just speculation. You're told the Bible is just myth. And yet it's verifiable every time we test it scientifically. You can't test religion. Yes, you can. You haven't tried. warfare going hmm? we really are in a spiritual war folks you have to choose between one of two sides choose widely it's either team god versus team satan and then you better get the right god too it's yahweh because as we were doing before the show we were talking about harmageddon Charlie, it, it, we're going to pop you in here. You can help explain this. Heiser was. Oh, yeah, I can explain this one yes, now. Yes, <laughs> you can explain this one. Dr. Heiser oh, man. does not bit, read it as Armageddon. No, no, no. I'll no, let no, you no. run with this one, Charlie, because yeah. Charlie's our Hebrew student, and he was trying, he was listening to Heiser on the way to class today on the audio, and Heiser reads that word in the book of Revelation slightly differently. And where Heiser gets is important. So I'll let Charlie explain it, and then I'll back clean up if it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it away, Charlie. Explain you know, he, what that word he, means he, to him. You know, we we used English, which is Armageddon, uh, but it's actually well, it's actually two Hebrew words, Har, and well, Megiddon is is the way it's it's done because what we have here is we have a problem with transliteration from Hebrew to Greek. And it gets complicated, and I don't, I don't want to des- des- necessarily uh, bore you with all the gory details of that because it gets a bit complicated. But he was equating it instead of Megiddo or Megiddon to Moed. And I'm like, how does he get there from that? And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. And... Joe actually found a video that he had. I'm putting that up in the links and posts for everybody right now. Yeah, yeah. Because if you want to see the details, he he does it very well. And it's only a two-minute and some uh, video, so it goes pretty quick. But as soon as he compared it to, uh, well, we we call it Sodom and Gomorrah in English. Well, it's actually Sodom and Amorah in in the uh, Hebrew. And I'm like, Oh man, as soon as he did that, I'm like, Oh, I think I know where he's going with this now. And so, yeah, he was able to prove that it's because certain letters are not available in the Greek for certain Hebrew letters so that they had to substitute and because of that substitution, you get Megiddon. And Which... he was saying, well, Megiddon, if you go there, there is a place called that in, in Israel in that area there, but Har means mountain, and there's not a mountain there. That's actually a plain. It's a, it's a flat terrace. And so he's like, that ain't right. But he also compared it, I believe, was it in Isaiah or Psalms? I forget exactly the scripture, but he, he talks about the mountain 
of the assembly, which that would be Moed is the, uh, well, the time of appointment or the meeting place. Hold on to that. And so you've got the mountain of assembly, the assembly or the mountain of the meeting place. Well, where would that be? Divine Council Worldview. Well, That's wherever Yahweh is. That's yes. Jerusalem. Where I have chosen to put my name in most scriptures, at least physically, uh, that is Yerushalayim or Jerusalem. It's also the heart of the believers now, yes. too. So yeah. that works. That, that, that's yeah, a case that, of that, both. That gets it. That's it. Get, gets it now, in hand there. Yes. Har Madim, mountain of the of the assembly, right? But you also, how is this connected to the Moedim? <laughs> the time of appointment, oh, the feasts yeah. and the Sabbaths. Yes. Mm -hmm. Folks, yeah, because... in the Hebrew, all of these ideas are intentionally linked. Jerusalem, the heart of the believer, the spiritual war between God's kingdom and Satan, everything else, Satan's kingdom and the appointed times, the Sabbaths and the feasts, which is connected directly to the Messiah's mission and the kingdom of Yahweh. All of this through that, just that one compound Hebrew word. Yep. And then, and we've got the, the, the feasts are divided into two sections. You've got the, the spring feasts is what we usually call them. And then the fall feasts is what we, we call the, the later feast. The, the spring ones have been already fulfilled first by, coming by the first coming of of uh, yeshua messiah and the second set that's yet to happen but and that's when, connected to trumpets when, when you connect that with the trumpets into and the wedding you, feast and, and then the morning you put and... all this together and you talk about harmo oh that all lines up hmm Folks, yeah. you are in a season, no doubt. It, we're, we're not telling you that we're predicting the second coming of the Messiah. Although, personally, I will not be surprised if the sky splits open in the east on, on some given fall feast day. Yes. I'm, I'm not surprised. We are ready. The, 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 there's very little left. But we are telling you, beyond shadow of a doubt, you're in a season that should be waking you up yes. if you belong to him. Yes. You should be looking to the eastern sky on a daily basis, and you should be busy about doing your master's work. We, we can, I believe we can accurately say we're not in the last days. We are in the end times. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Scripturally, for the very yes. first time in history, yes. we have everything missing. Yes. There's always enough, been something missing. There's there's enough stuff that's going on, you know, that, that we're there. Now, how long it's going to be before the... the, the yeah, I don't know. It know. doesn't tell us how long we, that We don't is. know that. But, but I know this. It's not going to be long. I can say this, and I think I can say this pretty confidently, it will be within this generation. Well, yeah, that's strongly suggested. Now, folks, I'm not teaching Christian nationalism because that goes against Scripture. Scripture teaches the kingdom of Yahweh is a spiritual kingdom, at least at this point in time. I have no doubt that it'll take over the world again. That's because it says so. But that's in the restoration of the new new earth and the new heaven and the new Jerusalem and everything. So right now, our kingdom is spiritual. So I'm not teaching a physical nationalist Christianity like everybody wants to preach right now. But I am telling you that this nation was founded on the, the, the patterns of Israel. The founders said so. And if you're not going to go back to the formula that worked, don't expect to rescue this country. And if you say you're in allegiance with the founding father's ideas, then you need to, for yourself, prove to yourself one way or the other, were they Christians or not? And were they founding this nation on Christianity or not? And until you hear the arguments from both sides, do not make your decision. And don't read a weak argument. You read the ones that I've given you. 
read original intent, read the, the defending the declaration and the constant, the Christian founding of the constitution. You read those three books and then you decide because they're chalk riddled full of the founder's words. And then I would say by their fruits, you shall know them mm-hmm. because if you look at, I mean, we, we became the greatest nation on earth. I, I think you could safely say that now. Are we there now? <laughs> I don't know about that now, but we were. And now if you look at it, it we're, we're following the same path. And, and you can see this over and over and over again in history. A nation that follows Yahweh, they're blessed and they become great. And then usually they start getting full of themselves and they start boasting and then they start falling down and then they're soon destroyed. God fears make good times. Good times make people who rebel against God. People who rebel against God make bad times. Oh, geez. Pattern. Yep. And it's cyclical. Oh, gee. Where, where yeah, prophetic in from? nature, right? That's, that's a Hebrew mindset right there, folks. Yep. So, and it's all about what? Lawfulness versus lawlessness. All of it told you this was about the notion of the rule of law from a certain point of view yeah but which law <laughs> gods or man's <laughs> that's that's your choice which are you going to follow one is lawful the other is still rebellion even if it, it is it law. is that's right one will put you in yahweh's camp the other one puts you smack in the crosshairs of isaiah 10 and this is where we have to decide because choose this day Right, because there are laws that if you are faithful and obedient to Yahweh, there are laws of men that you should not to obey. Exactly. Um, yeah, there were some people in the Bible that, you know, kind of set examples for that for us. <laughs> All right, folks, that's what we have for you today. Charlie, we're going to get out of here now. Um, All right. I'll get back to work. <laughs> Monday, Manic Monday. I know I'll have two full hours for you then. I've got a whole bunch of stories already piled up. But hey, man, we get done with the lesson. The lesson's done. Um, Some weeks we go over. Sometimes we don't. Um, I know we've had several short classes the last few days. We're done with class. We thank each and every one of you for being here. We love you. Everything we do here is a work of love. Hopefully it enriches you and edifies you and lifts you up and educates you. If you do find anything we're doing of value, please share it with your friends and family or those you think that might make use of it. If you're going to do that, all we ask beforehand is that you explain to them how we are. We're a little different. Um, If you don't mind, if you are of the mind too and you agree with it, we would like the thumbs up or the up rumble. That helps the show. And uh, also, if you can, we ask you to go to the donut page, our version of the donate page, $5 a month, set up a reoccurring donation. All we ask is $5 a month. If everybody who's following our page were to be able to buy us that $5 cup of coffee or, you know, those $5 worth of donuts every month, we'd be in a lot better shape here. And uh, it would keep us going for as long as we want to do this. Yeah, it's about a half a dozen donuts. Yeah, roughly. So otherwise, y'all have a good weekend. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Hopefully you'll get yourself into church. Draw nearer to the king. He's, he's nigh at the door. Be ready for him, please. And understand that everything you see in this world, you choose whether or not you're going to look at it from a materialistic point of view or spiritual. 
and how you see it and the things you do see and how you understand them all depends on what perspective you choose. See y'all Monday. Take care. Bye.